electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, rates hitting new highs and earnings taking center stage. Our stock setting up for a near-term rally and has a risk-reward for tech just gotten better. We will debate all that and much more with our investment committee today. Stephanie Link, Jason Snipes, Jim Labenthal, and John Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. We are close to session highs here. we got a rally in our hands. The S&P 500 up by 1.3% or 58 points. The Nasdaq up by almost 2%. Uh, yields meantime hitting fresh highs. 10-year yield hitting its highest level since December of 2018. Right now we are 2 Triple eights, lucky triple eights, 30 year Treasury yield at 2.9%, its highest level since April 2019. Stephanie Link, what just happened? Why the huge reversal here, <laughs> particularly because we're seeing not just the mega cap tech stocks do well in the NASDAQ, we're also seeing the quote unquote lower quality innovation names do well. ARC, for instance, is up about 5% today. Well, I, I think also you have the reopen names that are doing really well after the mask mandate at some of the uh, airlines from the TSA were lifted. So I think that's encouraging uh, to some degree. I also think the housing numbers, even though on the face it, they were strong underneath, it was all multifamily. So maybe the, the housing market is not as hot. Maybe the economic data continues to be mixed. Maybe the Fed doesn't have to go as much. Um, I mean, Bullard was crazy today saying maybe 75. Maybe that means he wants to get and they want to get ahead of the curve because we know they're behind the curve. But, um, you know, we, we've been talking a lot all year long, um, uh, Melissa, about all of these unknowns, right? And that it's going to be a choppy market because of the unknowns with war, with inflation, with the Fed. That's the reason why the market is down. The S&P is down 7% year to date. That being said, I was really encouraged by the banks and what they had to say, the big six, last week and then yesterday. And they, what they said mainly was the consumer is hanging in and they're really strong. In fact, J.P. Morgan said the consumer is extra, in, in extraordinary good shape. So to me, that's encouraging. And they talked about jobs and wages and savings and all of that. But they also then talked about how there's a shift more towards services, reopen. Why is that important? Well, A, the consumer is 70% of the economy. And B, services is 70% of U.S. consumption. So we are rooting for the consumer. And from what we're, we're hearing from the banks, they're fine. They're better than fine. So what does all this mean? Mid-single-digit, upper-single-digit earnings growth this year that's supported for stocks. I have said you want to be balanced between cyclicals and quality growth. I have been leaning more towards buying quality growth on the pullback because you know I have been uh, on the cyclical side. I'm really encouraged by the reopening names as well. So there's a lot to choose from here. Uh, I don't think you have to pay up and chase by any means. Stay patient and be valuation sensitive. Yeah, Diamond had an underbelly of caution in his commentary, but certainly Bank of America's Moynihan was very bullish when it came to the health of the U.S. consumer. That was yesterday morning. 
Jason Snipe, what's your take on what is happening in today's session? I mean, we had Bullard yesterday float that idea of 75 basis points, one hike of 75 basis points. And the market's okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, Mel. So I, I guess what I would I would start by saying is obviously last week we got a slew of macro data. Obviously, we we saw a CPI number that was in line. We saw a PPI number that was explosive. But when we go back to core CPI, uh, which was a little lighter than expected, which is led by uh, pullback in, in used car sales, uh, even as we look at durable goods have declined some. You know, and, I, and I'll go back to what Steph's point just made on, on financials and the state of the consumer. The consumer is still healthy at this stage. So I think these are all positive sentiments going forward. Let's see if the market could do some of the work, you know, and, and easing some of the supply chains, which obviously will be beneficial for a number of sectors. So I think there, there, are, there is some light at the tunnel and possibly, you know, uh, inflation you know, potentially topping out here. Maybe it's likely it will continue to persist, but maybe we don't see any higher numbers from here. And I think those are all positive tailwinds for the market going forward. Yeah, I don't want to get all bulled up on one session here, Jim Labenthal. And, and to put in perspective, the Nasdaq is still off just about 16, 17 percent um, from from its highs. Um, and we are just on the precipice of earnings season. What we've gotten so far is sort of a mixed bag. So what's your take on how we're positioning ahead of what could be a very consequential when it comes to the guidance companies give, especially as the dollar? This is something that, that you know, we talk about, but the impact of the dollar could be huge for multinationals this quarter. And it'll be interesting to see what companies say um, and how they navigate that, that guidance. It's certainly what they say, and not just the guidance on the dollar's impact, but the guidance on the war, the guidance on, uh, you know, margin uh, pressure from inputs going up. And I think you're right, Mel, to start off by saying, you know, one day does not a rally make. But I'd also like to put a little perspective here. We were in a rally mode until about two and a half weeks ago. And in that two and a half weeks, just looking at the S&P 500, which I like to because it's broader than the NASDAQ, we're off about 4% from that peak of about two and a half weeks ago. So it's not a crisis mode. It's not a, it's not a moment to say, oh my goodness, we're in a bear market and the rally's over. But there is a tug of war in the markets going on right now. And it's between a very aggressive Fed on the one hand, very aggressive as witnessed by Mr. Bullard yesterday, and earnings, which, as you rightfully pointed out, were just on the very cusp of. We had 8% of S&P 500 companies report so far. So that's just not enough to hang your hat on. But so far, 79% have beat estimates, which is close to the historical average. And at least over the last week, you've seen aggregate S&P 500 earnings <clears throat> estimates tick up again, albeit by a little bit. The main point of this is it's too early to hang your hat on earnings, but the initial indications are good. This week is going to be very, very important. Uh, and the next three weeks are going to be important because that's the heart of earnings season. That could be enough to overcome a very negative Fed or very aggressive Fed, particularly when the S&P 500 is off about 9% from its January high, meaning a lot's already priced in on the downside. You know, Jim raises an interesting point in terms of the S&P 500 and how far off of its high it is. It isn't that far off, actually, Dr. J, even though it feels feels worlds away. <laughs> We're off under 8% from its 52-week high. In your mind, does that make you feel better or worse? Worse in that maybe there's more damage that needs to be done on the S&P 500 because we haven't priced enough in. Well, um, Mel, I was just looking at that uh, structure for the VIX, 
And looking at that, if you look just at the spot VIX, in other words, the uh, second by second trading VIX, uh, that is basically under 21. You would say, well, pretty nice drop today. People must be feeling pretty bullish. Uh, and obviously the markets are higher. But you look out the curve and you look at it, Mel, out into June and it's north of 25 still. That's telling me that there's a lot of uncertainty potential for volatility out there um, in the June-July time frame for sure. And what does that mean? That means, okay, we're getting through this early uh, earnings cycle right here, but out the curve, not nearly as uh, bulled up as some of the short-term moves may tell people. So uh, I would say that we haven't sounded the all clear. It's nice that the market is able to trade up in the face of these much higher interest rates. I suspect a decent amount of that is also uh, the mask mandate that Steph mentioned, how good that is for the reopening, as well as crude oil coming off by better than 4%, I think, today. I think those two factors are pretty significant in the short term, but won't be nearly as significant out there three and four months into the future. Hmm. Steph, how are you feeling about technology as we, you know, we, we look out to Netflix earnings tonight after the bell? And I know that's not necessarily a name that you you dabble in, per se, but Netflix is sitting close to a two-year low here. Um, a lot of the Nasdaq stocks will be key to watch in terms of holding up that S&P 500. So do you think that we are in an environment here where technology, particularly large cap, uh, do well? I don't think really expensive technology stocks are going to do well. Non-earners especially will not do well, but I think there are a lot of places within technology that you can find bargains. Um, I, and I've been saying this for a while now, and I've been wrong on Facebook, but I have been adding to Facebook. I owned it before it fell. I still am a believer long-term. It trades at nine times EV to EBITDA. This is a profitable company with a $50 billion buyback, and I think they're going to get reels right. And they still have a very large user base in Facebook. And they have Instagram, which is getting no credit whatsoever. So that's an idea I like very much. You know IBM reports tonight, and I own that one as well. That's a turnaround story, a transition into the cloud story under new man fairly new management. He's been there for a while, but he's been doing a lot of things that I think are under the, the radar. Um, Fortinet, I love the cybersecurity space. So does everybody else. But the stock fell at one point this year, 16%. I had owned it. I sold it. I then bought some back because I do like the cybersecurity and markets, the total addressable markets. It's not cheap. I can't really defend it on a PE, that's for sure. But it had gotten to a price to sales level that was very affordable for me or attractive to me. And then I've been adding to Apple. On the margin, I have been shrinking the number of technology companies that I own in my portfolio. But I have been building bigger positions with the ones that I do own where I have a lot of conviction. Yeah. Uh, Jim Labenthal, on, on the 5 o'clock show, Fast Money, uh, we like to play a game, and this is going to have a long name, but basically I, I tell you what the scenario is, and you tell me what you think the outcome would be. So if I had told you yesterday that rates would go above 2.9% on the 10-year yield, and that, you know, I would ask you, what, what do tech stocks do today? Would you say up 2%? <laughs> I, I like the game you're playing. I'll, I'll willfully play it. Uh, the answer is, of course, no, I would not have said that. But, you know, the market gives you what the market gives you. And now you've got to digest it and ask, what is the market saying? And, and Melissa, I think the market may be saying 
we've gone a little too far on interest rates. I mean, you know, let's put it in perspective. The last month, you've seen 80 basis points increase in the 10-year. Uh, the 10-year yield has doubled over the last four months. And granted, there are valid reasons, whether it's inflation or the, you know, potential impact of quantitative tightening. But whenever you see an asset do a sort of, you know, exponential rise like that, I'm talking about yield in this case, usually there's a little bit of give back. And I think the tech sector is sniffing that out. By no means am I saying the 10 year is going to go back to 2%. But to come off from 2.9% down to 2.7% and stabilize there as we really figure out what's going on with inflation, that seems like a reasonable call to make. And I think that's what the tech sector is saying today. Peak rate think. That's a good one. Let's get to our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, with more on this great rate debate, especially following St. Louis Fed President James Bullard's comments yesterday made to the one and only Steve Leisman. You're also monitoring Charlie Evans, who's speaking right now, Steve. Yeah, just turning off the volume on that. Uh, Charlie Evans uh, saying a couple of things. He says the U.S. economy should do well even in a rising... I mean, he's talking right now to Jan Hatz. He's the Economic Club of New York, been monitoring it. He also sees the Fed needs to monitor for the risk of a wage price spiral. But that kind of bullish outlook for Evans kind of dovetails with what uh, Bullard told me yesterday. Uh, he showed himself to be one of the most hawkish, but also pretty bullish on the economic outlook. Uh, curiously, one of the more bullish ones. B Bullard believes the Fed uh, should raise the funds rate to 3.5% by year end in 50 basis point increments, and he thinks the U.S. is still going to have above-trend growth and declining unemployment. That one was successful and did set up the U.S. economy for a stellar second half of the 1990s, uh, one of the best periods in U.S. macroeconomic history, so it was successful. And in that cycle, uh, there was a 75 basis point uh, increase at one point. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not my base case here. Just FYI, he was talking about the 1994 rate hike cycle when the Fed did raise by 300 basis points, including a 75 basis point hike. He said, not ruling it out, but it's a possibility. He said the key is making clear to the public and markets that the Fed is in a new inflation fighting regime and that it means what it says about fighting it. If it gets that right, Bullard thinks the U.S. can have declining inflation above trend growth and low unemployment. A forecast, Melissa, as you know, not shared by many right now. Um, so let's just underscore what he's saying, Steve, um, to, to understand what we're talking about. He's saying uh, sequential 50 basis point interest rate hikes to total, what, an additional three and a quarter percent by the end of the year or so. But he still sees with that backdrop. Three and a half. Three and a half percent, excuse me, above trend growth and declining uh, unemployment. All right. You got that right, Melissa. Okay. And, and, and I, I raised my eyebrow like three times on that and went back at him. And he pointed to a paper written by Tom Sargent in 1982 when there was sim similar skepticism about the ability of the Federal Reserve to fight inflation back then. And he pointed to uh, several European efforts to fight inflation uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century that were successful. Uh, according to Tom Sargent, the Nobel Prize winning economist, where inflation magically disappeared because both the fiscal and the monetary policy authority went to a new inflation fighting regime and saying th that paper argued that you did not have to have a big cost in unemployment. Okay. Stay right there, Steve. I want to go to my traders. If I may, can I please ask the control room to see a four box of the traders? I'm going to see them up all at once. Do you guys, please show okay. of hands, do you agree with, with James Bullard in his assessment of what will happen if we hike rates three and a half, 
to three and a half percent by the end of the year. Do you believe that there will be above trend growth and declining unemployment? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Oh, Stephanie Link, you're the only one. Okay. Why are you I so like confident? to be a contrarian. <laughs> so you looked at all the other guys um, first and then you raise your hand. <laughs> I can't, I, no, I can't see anybody. I can't see anybody. I'm looking at a, a, at a camera. <laughs> so, right, so what's no, your thinking so I, here? It, it, it goes back to what I said in the beginning. The consumer is 70% of the economy. They have to stay healthy, right? And so if, and I do believe that they are in strong shape, especially after I heard the bank uh, CEOs tell us all the, all the great information over the last couple of days. That's number one. And it's a big number one. Number two, I do think inflation is kind of in that peakish area right now. And I do think supply chains eventually will improve inflation. That doesn't mean that inflation is going away. Wages and rents are going to stay high and they're more sticky. But I do think it's going to come down. I do think inflation is going to come down from these levels. That will help the consumer who have jobs and have wages and have savings to spend, right? And they are spending. Um, and then I think you also think about GDP. Well, certainly not going to grow 6% like we did last year, but we're probably going to grow about 3 to 4%. And that is because we are, we'll, I already thought that back in November, December of last year, that we were going to see slower growth. And that's because you don't have the fiscal and monetary policies in place that we had for the last two years. So this year you have less of that. So you're clearly going to slow. You obviously have war issues as well. Um, and that's a problem. We have to see how that all pans out. But I still think all add it all up. Maybe it's 3% GDP. That is above trend. And that's not a bad situation if you have lower inflation and lower growth, but still above trend growth. That's good for stocks. Steve, did you get a sense of, of what the scenario would be that would have Bullard advocating for a 75 basis point hike? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, he, he was pretty clear that th this was something that he did not want to rule out, not something he wants to do, but something that he might be uh, he might consider if the Fed did a series of rate hikes of 50 base point rate hikes and still did not seem to have control on inflation. Uh, he clearly wants to get the Fed up to neutral and says at that point, the Fed is not restraining the economy, which is actually true by definition, right? If the Fed gets to a place where that is, in fact, neutral, which is a kind of unknowable number, mm -hmm. the Fed is neutral as to whether or not it's helping the economy grow or holding the economy back. And then we'll see what happens with inflation. And the idea being that if the inflation regime is appreciated, uh, the inflation fighting regime is appreciated by the public and markets. He also points out, Melissa, the, the markets have done, I think Jim was talking about this earlier, an awful lot of the heavy lifting already. You are not going to get 300 additional basis points of tightening inside the two-year or the 10-year. There may mm -hmm. be another 100, 150 to come, but the bulk of it is already done. That is or, a good a point. a bunch of it anyway. Yeah, certainly a, the heavy lifting um, is, is in the bond market already. Is it in the stock market? Yeah. Or is there a disconnect, Jason, in your view? Yeah, so I, I think the point I would absolutely make is the Fed absolutely. I mean, there, there's a credibility story here. You know, so I think they have to front load. At this point, a lot of this is just conversation. It's just talk. It's just it's just a lot of commentary and sound bites. They have to talk about front loading. And I do believe, you know, once, you know, these two basis points, these two hikes, I think we see in May and June uh, happen in likely 50 basis points apiece which I think are priced into the market, they will be data dependent at that point. Let's see how things evolve. And as Jim 
shared earlier, I think the, the market will do a lot of the work and will continue to do so, especially as supply chains ease. So I don't think it's the Fed's going to be on autopilot. I think they're going to take a step back and see how things develop. All right. Uh, Steve Leisman, our thanks to you as always. Pleasure. Still ahead on the Halftime Report, trades on some of the biggest analyst stock calls of the day, plus John's latest trades in unusual activity and why there may be more pain ahead for one key area of tech. Halftime returns in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Time now for our calls of the day. First up, Bank of America downgrading Archer Daniels and Bungie to neutral as the firm cautions both companies could be nearing peak earnings. They acknowledge the huge run in the stocks, raising the price target, but still downgrading them. Um, Dr. J, you own a number of names in this space. I do, Mel. And the reason is quite simple, and that's the uh, sanctions against Russia, as well as, of course, uh, inability to get things out of Ukraine, uh, the breadbasket of Europe. So I think food prices continue to go higher. I'm not saying they're wrong for taking some money off the table, Mel. I've been in, uh, you know, it's up 97%. Mosaic is up 97% year to date. Um, so are you dumb to take money off the table? No. But these sanctions and the damage done to the infrastructure of Ukraine will mean that um, this is extending out years into the future. This isn't a fix that happens um, with the passing of just a couple weeks or a couple months, Mel. So I would continue to own those, just like I would continue to own coal names, like Peabody Energy, BTU, like Patterson Energy, PTEN, like the oil and gas names, because again, all of this is gonna continue to play out for years. This will be much higher prices for a long time, sadly, Mel. Yeah, um, Halliburton's earnings this morning, uh, Steph, gave us a good glimpse into uh, this industry and also the tight supply chain found across um, across sort of the scale of, of oil in North America. Yeah, yeah and Ireland Slumberger. It's, it's like, a, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. 
<laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, uh, yeah, so I own Schlumberger. I, I, I call it my hidden technology play because they have technology that helps their customers become more productive uh, and more efficient and helps their margins. So both parties win. Um, and so I wasn't surprised to see Halliburton do well today. I expect Schlumberger to do very well on Friday when they report as well. It is one of my larger energy positions. In ag, I own Corteva. It's the number one player in ag. And they have a new CEO, fairly new CEO, who's focused on growth, new products, and margin improvement. And for those of us that have owned Honeywell in the past, you'll remember the CFO at Honeywell for 11 years was Dave Anderson. He was brilliant. He is now the CFO at Corteva. Um, I just like the innovative culture, and I like the valuation. Even though it's up 30%, that's my play on the ag side. By the way, Corteva, new high in today's session. Let's move on to Meta, meantime, getting a price target cut from JMP Securities ahead of its earnings next week. We heard Steph already talk about adding to her position. Jason, how are you feeling about Meta? Yeah, so Meta, I, I sold actually a couple months ago. I mean, that was big for, for me, just the iOS changes uh, that Apple made. You know, so I decided to unload the position you know what? I, th I think it's going to take some time. It's a show me story here. Obviously, the name is, has grown tremendously since the IPO. But um, I, I think and, and also to the the investment that they've made into the metaverse and kind of see how that plays out. So for me, um, it, it, it's, it's not a position I own currently, potentially look at something down the road, you know, as far as entering back in. But it's, it's not something we own right now. All right, moving on to Lulu, upgraded uh, to a buy over at Truist, the firm raising its price target on the stock to $495. Uh, John, you own calls, is that right? I do, Mel. And, uh, you know, this is one that, uh, you know, knock on wood, Courtney Gibson really um, uh, got me into it, and I haven't wanted to get out of it. And that's the same story, Mel, with people that buy uh, their clothing, whether it's men or women, um, they love the the feel of the clothing, the production quality of the clothing. Uh, so I, I think this is one you do hold on to, despite the fact that uh, you know they're they've done as well as they've done. I don't see the competition really out there. I mean, yeah, they have lower price brands, even from big producers like Nike or Gap stores through. Um, their various uh, Lulu competitors. I just don't see people migrating or being at nearly as loyal to those brands as they are to Lulu, Mel. All right, um, got to take a break here. John, meantime, is tracking unusual activity in the options market. His latest trades are next on Halftime. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. James and Jennifer Crumbly back in court seeking a lower bond and house arrest after being charged with involuntary manslaughter for the 15-year-old son Ethan's school shooting rampage. Prosecutors maintain that the Crumplys were negligent in not preventing the shooting. Their defense arguing that the prosecution has unfairly portrayed them as bad parents and as the prosecution's understanding of the facts changes, the Crumbleys may be found not guilty. The judge has set their trial date for October 24th. The family of police shooting victim Patrick Leoya hiring forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz to complete an independent autopsy concluded that a single large caliber bullet shot through the back of Leoya's head was the cause of the murder. He also noted that he did not see defensive wounds, suggesting there was no altercation. Spitz has looked into many notable deaths, including President John F. Kennedy's and Martin, Link- Martin Luther King Jr.'s. And ride-hailing giants Lyft and Uber say riders and drivers will no longer be required to wear face masks. The move comes just one day after a federal judge in Florida struck down the Biden administration's mask mandate. Riders will still have the option to wear masks, which are still recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Back over to you, Mel. All right, Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Time now for unusual activity. And John, what are you seeing in the options market today? Well, um, for a change, Mel, it's not all just really, really short term. Uh, The first one is Alibaba, B-A-B-A. This one, there's call buying 11,500 of the calls all the way out to June at the 120 strike. Now, the stock was uh, roughly $93 when they were buying those, Mel. So that represents quite an upside move. Uh, Obviously, the stock has been in big trouble, um, as many of the Chinese stocks have falling rather dramatically from last fall till now. Um, But it's made a bit of a recovery, and I'd be willing to bet on this one coming back as well. Second one, Mel, is Stone, S-T-N-E. This one, they bought 8,500 of the January 13 calls with the stock at about $10.50, $10.60. It's FinTech out of Brazil for uh, merchants, digital sales, and all the rest. Um, and very cheap compared to where this one was as well. So those are two big stocks that people are betting on bounces after just some horrible hits that they've taken. Third and final, Mel, is Snap, um, SNAP, $33 stock right now. Um, they bought 10000 of the end of April, uh, 35 calls. Again, just out of the money, a dollar and a half out of the money. Um, I like the play. Um, I think Snap could have a little snap back, Mel. And so I'm in all three of these trades. And obviously, Snap's a little bit of a play on what goes on between uh, Elon Musk and the Twitter board as well. So people think Snap's going to go higher because what scenario with Twitter and Elon Musk? Well, that maybe they get, uh, for instance, uh, the, that poison pill and other measures uh, could keep Mr. Musk from getting it. That's bad for Twitter, bad for Twitter shareholders, but good 
for Snap, which is basically eating Twitter's lunch as far as ads go. Okay. All right, up next, how hedge funds are positioning in this market. A new investor letter out from Greenlight Capital. We'll tell you all about it. Plus, semi-stocks off 20% from their recent highs. Is there more pain ahead for this group? How the committee is playing the semis next on Halftime. Greenlight Capital's David Einhorn out with a new letter this hour. Leslie Picker is following the money. She joined us now with the latest. Leslie. So yeah, Greenlight Capital's David Einhorn revealing a more bearish portfolio posture from the first quarter that paid off in its returns. Einhorn added more index hedges and increased macro positions in credit default swaps and inflation swaps. The firm has directed its research efforts to focus primarily on short ideas. As such, Einhorn said the firm added no large additions to the long side during the quarter. The strategy paid off in the fund's performance. Greenlight returned 4.4% in Q1 compared with a 4.6% decline in the S&P 500. Einhorn devotes a considerable space in this letter to monetary policy, implying the Fed is implementing a, quote, weak initial response that could exacerbate the problem of high inflation. He said if the Fed was serious about stopping the inflation problem, it would be as aggressive and creative in tightening as it was when it was easing. Einhorn analogized the debate around a quarter point versus a half point hike to try and figure out whether it was best to clear a foot of snow with a soup ladle or an ice cream scooper. And on the fiscal policy side, he thinks the quote, response to high energy prices is likely to lead to even higher energy prices. Einhorn said, quote, there is some evidence that inflation is destroying demand, which is slowing the economy. Melissa, so you can see some of his uh, bearish posture is playing out in how he feels about the macro environment right now. Yeah, the performers in, in the quarter, Leslie, interesting because he got into coal, a coal name, and a copper name just before war broke out. But he only added very small positions to some other ones, um, a lot in sort of the transport and energy space. That's right. So he announced the new additions included International Seaways, Ryanair Holdings, TD Sinex Corporation, and Southwestern Energy and Weatherford International. But again, these are very small positions. You can see they are some kind of play, whether directly or indirectly, on what's going on with inflation, which he kind of spells out in the in the letter a little bit, that he thinks there is some bullishness in names that are exposed to uh, commodities and, and things that would benefit from higher energy prices and the like. So you can see that in his positioning, but interesting that the short side of the book is where he's been focused on, especially since in prior years, that's been a, a real difficult place for any hedge fund manager to make money. Yeah. Uh, well, when you take liquidity away, maybe it'll make it, make this game a little easier for them. Um, Leslie, exactly. thank you. <laughs> Leslie Picker, is now the time to look for shorts in this market? Jim Labenthal. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, Melissa, you're probably aware that Scott calls me Mr. All In. I think, I know. you know, if there were a criticism of that, I would say that I've been too early, but not really because I kind of did this at the end of February, early March. But I don't think this is a market to short. Now, I know you don't like it when I bring up my frenemy, Steve Weiss. He would answer the opposite, but he's got a thesis that we're going to get down to a 14 multiple on forward earnings for the S&P 500. I just don't see that because I see earnings continuing to grow. And again, back to what I said at the beginning of the show, this is a tug of war right now between earnings growth and the Fed. The market's been pricing in the Fed for three months. It hasn't been pricing in earnings growth that I think is going to continue, uh, even though we're only early in the earnings season. We've seen it already. 
Um, John, I'll ask you the same question. Do you think now is the time to look for short opportunities in this market? No, I don't, Mel. Um, mm. I think Jim's been right about uh, the market isn't just going to dismiss higher interest rates. The question is, how much higher do they go? Um, the bond market has done a lot of work. You've talked about that, Mel, um, for the Fed already. Um, the question is, uh, are the rest of the Fed uh, market participants on the FOMC, the voting members, are they going to be of the same mind as Mr. Bullard? I think not. And I don't even think Bullard uh, said that it's an absolute you know, slam dunk that he'd be in for 75 basis points. He just said it's at least in the discussion. That doesn't mean that he thinks it's likely. Um, so I think the bond market uh, has already done as much as it needs to do. And then we'll see after the next Fed meeting how we shake out, Mel. All right. Uh, moving on to chips, the chip ETF down 20 percent this year. Nearly every stock in the SMH is down double digits in 2022. And today, Wolf Research says that the semis lack of a support of a key technical level means that they could break down even lower. Um, Steph, you recently reduced your chip exposure. Which names? Yeah, NXPI and LAM Research. And it was really just taking some profits because I had bought these two years ago and I was up, you know, triple digits in these names. But more importantly, I'm a little nervous that as supply chains actually start to ease, and they will eventually, we just don't know the timing. But as it happens, I think you're probably going to have some inventory issues because I think you've seen double and triple ordering just so that these companies could meet demand. They, they said it on their conference calls. So I just don't know the timing of when that's going to happen, but I do think it will happen. And Lamb in particular, wafer fab equipment, it, it trades on that kind, that, that stat, right? And the numbers are starting to go down for 2023. You've seen 15, 16, 20% growth over the last several years in WFE spend. And now you're talking about down single digits, not the end of the world, but I don't think the stock is going to be able to outperform when that happens. I own Broadcom. It's a huge position. They've done a great job uh, navigating the challenges. They're buying back stock. They increase their dividend. They've got 5G, AI, cloud, data center. And oh, by the way, they raised numbers last quarter by like monster numbers. So I like that company. And if that one were to fall, I like the diversification and I would be buying that one. And XPI getting a downgrade over its city today. And the analyst there talks about peak margin. It was a margin expansion story for some time when the stock was up. Jim, um, you own this one. What do you think of, the, of this thesis? Well, I, I still very much like the stock and the sector. Um, you know, I would note that uh, NXPI is off a little over 20% from its 52-week high. So, you know, that, that sort of comment I from the analyst I would have liked to have heard like three months ago. Um, but I, it wouldn't have changed my mind, though, because the biggest market for NXP semiconductors is the automotive sector. We know that the automotive sector just simply can't get enough chips, right? They can produce enough cars, trucks, and SUVs to sell all they want right now. That demand has not been destroyed. It is pent up, and they just need the chips. NXP is in a, is in a condition where they can really name their own price. So I don't see the uh, margin pressure that's being talked about here. Jason, you have a couple of long-term holdings. It sounds like you're going to look very hard at them given their declines. Yeah, so obviously I, I own Qualcomm and NVIDIA. Um, you know, if I look at Qualcomm, it's just tremendous value there. You know, trading at 12 times uh, forward, you know, it's down over 20% year to date. I just look at the, the entire industry. I mean, it's a $500 billion TAM. I think there's just a lot of demand. I mean, Jim makes a great point, you know, on the automotive sector. I think there's so much demand there 
yeah, and and obviously they they've struggled as of late. But for me, you know, I'm I'm not really uh, looking to make any moves here, but I'm be watching as the quarters to come. You know, I think supply chains are a very important point to note here. So we'll see how things unravel. All right, coming up, Netflix shares falling over 40 percent this year. Some of the committee owns this one. We'll debate the trade ahead of earnings when halftime returns. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Real debate and actionable advice from the Investment Committee, plus unusual activity and more. Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Netflix earnings after the bell today. The street expecting subscriber growth to slow. This was Netflix's downfall after release earnings last time, Jason. It was a very disappointing forecast. They traditionally have not been good at forecasting their own subscriber growth. So what are you looking for this quarter? Yeah, I mean, Mel, obviously it's been very disappointing, down 40, north of 40% year to date and down over 12% in the last week. So I'm really interested to see how they're doing in the Far East. Obviously, Netflix has done well here in North America and Latin America. Um, and, and in Western Europe. But let's see how they do in the Far East. You know, subscriber growth, I, I expect to slow. Obviously, they were a huge pandemic winner and, and they benefited from the environment with folks shifting to services and experiences. Um, I, I think Netflix will, will have some trouble going forward. So let's see how it plays out. Uh, you know, here we'll see very soon after the bell today. So that's how I'm playing it here. International growth has always been the, uh, the bull's um, you know, tenant for this for this stock, Dr. J. We got a report from Cantor, which said that UK households were cutting their subscriptions um, by one and a half million. That's up by five hundred thousand. Mark Mahaney last night on Fast Money said that j- growth in Japan and Latin America has been a little bit more disappointing. What happened to this part of the growth story? Does this make you concerned? You own calls. I do, Mel. And uh, one of the levers I thought they had to pull was the the idea that they could move up the subscription rates um, without losing too many subscribers. Now, whether it was the content, whether it was economic cutbacks by consumers, um, perhaps that outlook by me was wrong, uh, that they didn't have nearly the pricing power that I thought they did. I thought because of all the shared passwords and so so forth, that is within a given household, that they could do that, Mel. But at least what has borne out so far is that that's not really the case. I still hold the, I believe, 360 calls, Mel, which are $10 out of the money. Um, and I'm short 400s against them in May. Um, we'll see, as Jason said, after the close tonight, whether or not, uh, I mean, it certainly looked like 330 to 350 was where we've bounced several times, three times uh, basically in the last three months. If that doesn't hold here and we don't go higher, then it's probably time for me to fold them up and go away. All right. Well, IBM is another big stock to watch ahead of earnings after the bell. Stephanie owns it. We'll get you set up for that one next on the Halftime Report. IBM earnings after the bell today. Stephanie, you own this one. I do. I do own it. And it's another restructuring turnaround story. I hope that 2022 
they will be able to deliver. For tonight, I don't really expect a lot. They have headwinds from currency. You asked that question at the top of the show. They definitely are going to feel it. So that's a headwind. And seasonally, this is a weak quarter. The first quarter is a weak quarter for them. That being said, I do think you're going to see a good encouraging developments in consulting, high single digits, uh, and software as well, high single digit growth led by Red Hat. And then infrastructure likely to be flat. The mainframe cycle doesn't really refresh until the second quarter. So an inline quarter, I think, would be fine. I think gross margins are going to do better than expected because they're going to have more of a software mix. The key will be guidance, obviously. And the free cash flow number that I'm looking for in terms of guidance is $10.28 billion for the full year. And it gets them to that $35 billion guidance over the next three years in free cash flow. The stock is inexpensive at 12.8 times earnings. You get a 5% yield. It has outperformed the XLK nicely year to date by 10 percentage points. Um, and I just think this is going to be the first quarter that starts a good 2022 turnaround year for the company. It's been a relative outperformer versus its peers, versus the S&P 500, yeah. versus a lot of other indices. Jason, um, as Stephanie had mentioned, its valuation is low. Uh, is it low for a reason? Or do you think it's value? <laughs> It's a good question. Obviously, I, I don't own IBM, you know, but what I would say is it's, it's clearly in the value space. And I, I think if you're looking at this market and watching inflation and watching where rates are, obviously, the investor base is now looking more closely to valuation than they have in the last three years. You know, so I think it's to Steph's point, it is a turnaround story. Let's see how it develops over the next couple of quarters. And, you know, and, and I think that that's the market's kind of take on it. And we'll kind of see how it works out. All right. Final trades up next on Halftime. Be sure to tune in to Fast Money at 5 o'clock Eastern tonight. We'll be breaking down all the details on Netflix and IBM earnings and take a look at the king dollar kingpins. Where should you invest when the greenback is rallying as it is right now? All right. A number of stocks hitting new highs in today's session. Raytheon among them. Jim, you own this one. Yeah, I've owned it for a couple of years. And, you know, to state the obvious, defense spending is going up around the world and the demand for Raytheon's products in that regard, uh, they really produce what the world wants right now. The other half of the story is, of course, aerospace, which is also picking up as the global economy recovers from the pandemic. So there's two reasons to own the stock. Um, J&J also hitting new all-time highs. A mixed quarter here, Steph. I thought what was interesting was a commentary from the CFO about the expectations for the COVID vaccine, how it met internal expectations, but there was a disconnect with what the street was expecting. Yeah, it was a little confusing, but I think the bigger story, uh, Melissa, is pharma continues to hum along ex-COVID. Run, It uh, came in at about 9.3% growth, but also the med tech, med device business. That's the reopen play, right? And that actually saw very nice growth and acceleration to 8.5%. Remember, they're going to combine these two businesses and spin off the consumer business. So to the extent med tech is doing well and has momentum, I like that for the valuation as they do the spin. All right, let's get to the final trades here. Jason Snipe. I like PNC here. This is my favorite regional in the space. I think the acquisition of BBVA will continue to be accretive to the balance sheet, so I like it here. Stay Stephanie long. Link. Stephanie Link. Uh, GXO Logistics is the spin from XPO. Flawless execution. Total addressable market is huge. $8.6 Jim Leventhal. 
Yeah, Citigroup, Mel, um, the yield curve is steepening and rising, which is also going to benefit Jason's PNC, but also the sentiment on this particular name has changed since earnings came out last Thursday. It's very easy to tell. Dr. J, John Ajarian. Charge point, Mel. I bought the uh, April 16 calls with the stock trading right here um, at about 1580 just minutes ago. All right. That does it for us here on the Halftime Report. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.